Humanity considers itself entitled to the domain and perspective of God. Thus, it is going to construct a means of claiming the kingdom of heaven for its own namesake. The Tower of Babel, as it appears in Genesis chapter 11, is an effort on the human spirit to raise itself up to the station of God, with a singular use of language to rule all that is within its sight. There exists on earth a common language found in Genesis 11, and this common language of the world has produced a common conspiracy, to seize the perspective of heaven and make a name for humanity. But even today, long after Genesis 11, the godless motives of the world demand that we build new structures in the name of our desires. Even fatherhood and what it means to be a man must be sacrificed to this, according to the worldly lines of thinking. Rather than submitting to the call of the world to build up structures in the name of our desires, we must build up a generation surrendered to the holiness of God that fears God as righteous and abhors wickedness. Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and here with me in the studio is Pastor Anthony Allegria. There's great power in words, and today we're going to discuss the Tower of Babel, and this is the first of a series on the Tower of Babel. And as we come to Genesis 11, we are reminded there's something about this story which is centered around language. There truly is great power in the use of language, and the sin in Genesis 11 is brought about by the unrighteous application of human language. Creation itself was set in order by the Word of God. It is by the power of human words that our minds can think and reason with great aim. Words are wonderful tools giving us inspiration, pulling at our hearts, and portraying our thoughts about the world. They can be beautiful. They can reveal new ideas to us. Yet such words can also be deceptive and twist minds with such a mangling power that individuals will give their souls over to evil without any regret, without remorse, or without even awareness that they are willingly drinking the cup of evil and handing their soul over to something quite crooked. Human language is a tool to navigate the world. It has no soul, and it is hardly a matter of eternal value. But notwithstanding this fact, we must remember that we often carry out matters of eternal value using this tool of language. And thus we must revere words and language with great reverence, and we must acknowledge how powerful this tool really is. For the field of language is no empty piece of real estate. It is a vital arena where we decide in our heart of hearts how we will organize our lives. It is important that we exercise wisdom in this arena and that we firmly plant our minds in faith to the God whose perfect language gave order to the heavens and the earth. And there is a great contrast between the fallible human language that we often speak and use within our minds and the mysterious perfection of the word of God. God's word not only gave order to the void, but it also took on human flesh as Christ Jesus. It is mysterious, and the word of God it is clearly not limited in the manner that human language is limited. And language is an important element in the story of the Tower of Babel. Furthermore, language was the tool used to carry out the sin involved in this tower. Now, language itself is not necessarily sinful, and language itself doesn't have necessarily any sort of moral value. But rather, there are some sins which are carried out through the use of language. That is a tool which can be used in the corruption of the world. The great sin of the Tower of Babel is the attempt to make humanity into a god by elevating the power of its language to the power of God. Let's open up by reading just the first verse in Genesis chapter 11. Anthony, would you read for us Genesis 11 verse 1? Just that first verse there. And I want everyone to pay attention to some words that are there because we go over this and we can kind of glance at it and 
Let's just take a, a close examination. Anthony? Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. All right, so we're reading this from the NRSV. But there's actually some particular things that you can generally find across all translations. What we're seeing happen here is that the language of humanity is limited. This text is telling us that there is a common language being used throughout the earth. And it is in this common language that a great sin is being committed. Particularly, there is the same words or one words that are permitted here. Now, you might look at this and you want to interpret this as saying there's only a single language on the earth. But if we go back to Genesis 10, Genesis 10 tells us that there are multiple languages that are actually out there on the earth. Interestingly, Genesis 10 informs us that the children of Noah have spread out and formed nations of their own with unique languages emerging out of them. Yet, there's still a common language that people are using all throughout the earth. Sort of like if you go somewhere like in Europe or other parts of the world, they might have English as a common language that they use, but each nation has its own language. I know when I spent some time in, in Eastern Europe, there was, of course, Hrvatska or Croatian. There was the, the Czech language. You have Hungarian. You have a lot of different languages, but oftentimes people would adopt a common language between them. It appears that Genesis 11 is telling us that there is a common language throughout the earth. But whenever this language is used, it is not going to allow any borrowing of words. Like in English, we borrow words from a lot of languages. Our language is made up of, of many words which are just transliterated straight into to English. Like the word evangelism. It comes from a Greek word, euangelion, but we kind of blend it right into English. There are many words that are like this. But this common language in Genesis 11 will not tolerate such. There are no competing viewpoints allowed within this language. There are no synonyms. There are no competing words. This language, it has paved the way for an evil plot to emerge. And within this evil plot, no alternative speech is allowed. The speech in this situation is controlled and dissent is non-existent. One must use the language of this grand conspiracy. One is not permitted any other language or any other words. Anthony, would you read again for us verse 1 and continue on to verse 4 in our scripture today? Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Throughout human history, people have built structures of sacred importance. Temples and shrines have been erected whenever people want to display their connection with God. And whether such is done in praise of an achievement or simply to mark something which is sacred, people tend to build religious sites. But the city and its tower of Babel are great marvels of architecture, but they aren't of traditional religious importance. Because what we find here is that they are not building a shrine to God or any connection to God, but it is a truly shrine to humanity. The city and its tower, they are no simple series of structures. They are not made out of a passing whim. They are great marvels of architecture. Building the city and its tower is a great task that demands cooperation, skill, and a large collection of devoted resources. It is an overwhelmingly costly project. Moreover, the sin of claiming the perspective of heaven in the name of humanity is no simple sin to pull off. And I've got to say this, while I'm not attempting to rate out sins, I don't typically like to, to rate out sins and say which one is worse than others. I do have to point out that while all sins may be equally easy to begin in the heart, 
Some are actually more difficult to carry out to the full will of the sinner. The sin such as building a tower to gain the perspective of heaven is not something that is easy to endure till its end. Many may start out on this and may equally just be guilty of the same sin by beginning such a task, but I feel like many people would abandon such an enduring task after the early stages of lust faded and you realized how impossible it would be to create a tower into heaven. The tower is interestingly situated in scripture. Particularly if we look at the chronology of the history of the people of God, it comes on the coattails of the story of Noah and the flood, which concludes with God putting a bow in the sky. And that bow was a sign to remind us that the flood event would never strike earth again. Furthermore, that the line between heaven and earth, it could not be disturbed. It was reasserted the order between heaven and earth, and only with warrant could one ever pass it. But yet, in Genesis 11, even though humanity was just told that the order of heaven and earth was being reasserted, that they could not willingly just cross that line as however they may have seen fit, they decide to test this anyway. And this time they are quite literally carrying out this task of testing the line between heaven and earth by building a tower to heaven. Even though humanity cannot reach the gates of heaven anymore, that does not stop them from testing their position. Now, the tower in Genesis 11, it is a story that is about the human spirit and all of us. It's not a story with specific heroes or specific villains, but it is one that instead addresses all of humanity as they may be found throughout the earth. It is not a story about unity or diversity. Often people attempt to connect morality to notions of togetherness, unity, or to notions of diversity or some sort of diverse matter of thought. But yet, whether one is united in their sin or sinning individually, it does not really matter. Sin is sin and wickedness is wickedness. If one commits a murder with the assistance of a companion, their act is not moral simply because they did it together as an act of unity. Likewise, if one performs an act of charity and secrecy, it is not moral because of their individuality. It is the nature of an act that determines the morality of it and it is not the question of who an action is done with or without. The motives of those building the tower in Genesis 11 is to elevate humanity. And often we discuss the elevating powers and principalities that we have in our world and we discuss them in a metaphorical sense. But here in Genesis, we find a very literal application of elevation. Human humanity is building a tower to approach the heavens. And this way they hope to increase their power. Now the tower is certainly not a temple to recognize the glory of God but it is clearly something which is attempting to deify man. And that's, well, that's a bad thing. The Tower in Genesis 11, it really is different from standard religious sites that we see in the Old Testament. You see everything out there in the Old Testament, it seems. You see simple wells, you see magnificent feats of architecture, you see all sorts of things being given religious significance. Sometimes this is done to give honor to the God of Israel. Other times it is done to, well, pay homage to some idol or some pagan deity, and there is corruption that comes in hand. But the Tower of Babel really is different from those other scenarios because instead of picking some external idol or actually trying to, to make good on humanity's relationship with the God who spoke creation into existence, this site, this massive tower, is made for one of the greatest idols of all, and that is humanity itself. Its aim is not to glorify any aspect of heaven, but rather to elevate humanity to the height of heaven so that it may see the world as if it were God. Laws against idolatry, they are found all throughout our tradition. 
You even look at the Ten Commandments. Those early commandments there in that order, they are all centered around idolatry. And, well, if you think about it, really idolatry is essential to the nature of all sin. The sinful heart of humanity, it desires to fashion itself as the one dictating the laws of the universe and not to allow any other power to do that. Idolatry really is the act of placing oneself in position to judge the value of every action, saying that it gets to determine what is holy and unholy. It is what will determine what is good and not good. And humanity, in the story of Genesis 11, wants to make a name for itself by building a tower. Warriors, great heroes, if we look throughout history, we see that they want to make a name for themselves. Kings, conquerors, those who go out and take another land, they want to make a name for themselves, and this often takes place in battle. But yet in Genesis 11, all of humanity wants to make a name for itself by building a tower that reaches to heaven. This is not a show of power against an opposing nation, but rather a show of power against God. It is a disregard for God even. You might look at this and say, well, are they really wanting to attack God? Is that their will, their motive? But really what you see happening is they have utter disregard for God. They look to the domain of heaven and say, that tower over there, it is good. That, that place, that domain, that is a good perspective. We want that. Therefore, we will take that. They have no regard for God. And then they build a tower to bring themselves to that level. But this ultimately falls into sin. God is holy, and therefore his people should also be holy. Yet people for ages have desired to be the ones who decide what is holy. There's a continual theme throughout the course of man where a man says to himself, I want this to be holy, therefore I declare it to be holy. This is nothing new, and we find many occurrences throughout human history of people doing just that. But the account of the tower in Genesis 11 is unique in the fact that it emphasizes the role that language plays in corrupting minds. We find cases of idolatry which emphasize different stories and different heroes, different villains who have done similar things. But Genesis 11, it reminds us that language is very powerful in this role. Language, it allows our minds to be persuaded by wickedness and our actions will soon follow. Language is a very important tool for the development of the mind. It is vital to how we think. And the thoughts of the builders of the Tower of Babel, they are corrupted. The common language of the world has produced a common conspiracy. To seize the perspective of heaven and make a name for humanity. There are no deviation in the words used that will be permitted. There is no counterpoint, no debate, no arguments. There are no dissenting viewpoints which will be allowed. And there is no allowance for words outside of this one language to be used in the construction of the Tower of Babel. And if we spend some time thinking about what this tower would look like, and many compare it to something like a Babylonian ziggurat or things of that nature, which we know historically have existed, the Tower of Babel, it would have been a magnificent thing to behold. It would have been a beautiful building, but yet it was corrupted by the motives behind it. And it was built for the wrong reasons. It was built by men desiring what was holy to be only decided by their eyes and only holy to their perspective, not with any reverence or consideration for the holiness of God. Those building the tower desired the perspective of heaven and to overthrow it and rename it in their own viewpoint. They wanted to transform heaven so that it was no longer rooted in God's holiness, but instead it was reshaped by their views, their opinions, and the desires of those who seized it. The Tower of Babel, it is like a seized machine of war coming to conquer something that humanity does not have and make it their own. 
It is unique in the sense that it is not particularly concerned with those living in the domain of heaven. It doesn't want to come and conquer them in the ways that others may want to go conquer another land. But it is one that looks at a, a cherished good. It looks at the perspective of heaven, the view, the height of it, that says that is good and we want it. So they build a siege machine to gain access to heaven and claim it in the name of sin. The people of earth, they want to build a monument for themselves and fashion heaven by their own name. They want to build a new holiness. And this is an ambition sin. All right, so today is Father's Day. And on this day, we give honor to our fathers. And it's interesting to think of the similarities that one tends to have with their father. Not only do we often look quite similar to our fathers, but we often adopt a similar skill set and taste as those who are our fathers. If our father enjoyed playing music, making music, there's a chance we will do the same. If our father enjoyed working on cars, tinkering with motors, learning of those things, then there's a good chance that we're going to do that too. If our father really loved working the land, loved being a farmer, liked working with livestock, there is a chance that deep within our own blood, there is the urge to do this. And there is a good chance that we often pick up the very hobbies, the habits, the speech patterns, the little details of our fathers. Recently here at the church, we had a, a night where we came together to do art and we were doing some Bob Ross things. And there was a gentleman who, whose father was known for being an artist. He, he drawn a lot of stuff. He did a lot of really crafty things. He had beautiful pieces of woodwork that he would produce, even building some of the furniture here at the church, just very meticulous, wonderful looking things. And his son, who was there that evening and his father now passed, he was sitting there working throughout some things and he had tried his hand at painting um, really for one of the first times in his life. And he, you could tell after the, the night was over, he was kind of holding that and he could see there was some connection he was having with his father as he was looking there at his own hand doing something and, and realizing something in his father's nature had come through the course of genealogy down in his life. And he was thinking about how wonderful that was. Being a father is an important thing. And the modern world is trying desperately to redefine manhood and fatherhood. It wants to build for itself a new model of these things. In the same way that the builders of the Tower of Babel wanted to fashion a new model of heaven and of holiness. The godless motives of our world demand that we build new structures without any regard for anything before us. They say that we must build these new structures purely in the name of our desires. If we want it, we feel it with full conviction. We feel in our hearts a, a taste for something, a desire, a lust. We must rework the world in accordance with those lusts. Even fatherhood and what it means to be a man, they must be sacrificed to this if it is what we want. But yet we know that God created all, all of creation with a logical order and a logical purpose. Therefore, I challenge us, those of us in the church, to stand firm in our faith, to stand firm as men, standing and honoring the call that God put on all people to all of creation. We must stand firm against this desire to rebuild, to deconstruct, to tear things down and rebuild in the name of desires, and we must maintain the order of creation. To men, on this day, I challenge us to teach our children to build up holy lives that are modeled after God's holiness and not after the godless world. When we think of our fathers, I pray that we can embody the best of their traits and those traits which are derived from the nature of God as he has revealed them to humanity. We must teach our children to be active and go on the great adventure of holiness. Just as one may look to their father and say, well, he, he enjoyed working with automobiles. He enjoyed woodwork. We may want to emulate that. Our father may have been a jack of all trades, loving to, to work and around the house and things of that nature. We may want to embody those. But the greatest thing that is without any connection to any culture, any time, any specific 
aspect of the world, the true eternal qualities of the things which we must teach our children. We must teach our children to be people who fear God, are trustworthy, and they hate dishonest gain. And on this Father's Day, as we give honor to our fathers and those father figures who were role models to us as we came of age, we think of the great challenge we have to be role models for those coming after us. The world has its standards for success, but the standards for holiness are timeless and unchanging. Holiness is not contingent upon any culture, any nation, or any area in history. And as we close, I want us to think of that great calling we have. We must teach our children to fear God, to not be people who bow down before the demands of the world, but to be people who truly understand that they live under the jurisdiction of God. We must teach them to be trustworthy and righteous, holding fast to the call of God and living in accordance with the laws and commands of God. And we must teach them to hate the dishonest gains of this world, to abhor wickedness. Our world wants to say, oh, you can't hate the sinner and, or excuse me, hate the sin and love the sinner. But that is a very immature line of thinking. We can make differentiations. We can realize that sin, it is like a predatory animal. It comes to, to consume and Whenever such a beast comes to consume someone, we should have pity for that person and we should be angry at the sinful beast coming to consume them. Because many sins, they come like a disease of the mind to, to fester in and to distort, twist and mangle the soul in a way which is unholy. And as we close, I want us to pray that righteousness of faith can be raised up in the world around us. That we can raise up a new generation that rejects the siren call of the world to abandon all tradition, to abandon all which is orderly, rational, and well-organized, and embrace the call of desire. I pray that we can raise up a generation that rejects all of this and instead embraces with full force the call to holiness. And with that, that's where we're going to wrap things up. Anthony, you have any final thoughts? I know normally we do this more of a conversation. I kind of got a bit on a holiness preaching mentality and didn't have much conversation there. Any final thoughts before um, we close? No, I think that you uh, covered all that very well. I would only say that there is something interesting to be said about the line. Uh, I forget which verse it is exactly. Ah, yes. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And I was reading about this and apparently brick and bitumen. Bitumen is basically an ancient form of asphalt. Both of these are extremely inferior building materials to stone and mortar and so this sort of makes their pride and arrogance almost even greater that they are um, using inferior materials to uh, attempt these great feats and to gain this fame you know they really aren't even uh, they're sort of like Cain they're making a small sacrifice for the favor of God or for at least go uh, godly fame Whereas Abel would have made the best sacrifice if he desired that thing, but he desired the favor of God. Well, they're not even willing to make the best sacrifice for godly fame. They're making uh, a very mundane one. And to your point concerning the reconstruction that our society is trying to have on manhood and fatherhood, today they are using inferior materials to try and rebuild manhood and fatherhood in the same way that um, the builders of the Tower of, Battle, of Babel seeking a heavenly place were using inferior materials. Yeah, a lot of the, the worldview of the really secular world, which is quite honestly opposed to Christianity, it's not coherent. Like it doesn't even logically hold up. They'll say, well, there are things like your 
being a man or a woman is a social construct, and then they insist that somebody can go from one to the other, which implies that those things aren't social constructs and they're actually real. So there's a lot of incoherence with it. It doesn't even hold up to its own logic well. Anyways, we're not here to, to discuss that. We're here to remind people of the holiness of God and the freedom that you can have from that. Because there is such freedom. That's, that's the beautiful thing is, is one desires so greatly to have that perspective of heaven. They want to be at the top. But the, the way that one enters into the, to the kingdom of God is through the arms of God, is through the love of God. One can live in the domain of God. They can come to be there, but only with God's permission, only with the love and care of God. If one is willing to open up and have God come into their life and live by God's command, there's great beauty, there's great hope, there's great peace that comes within that. Anthony? Stone and mortar is available to us by the grace of Christ. Yes, absolutely. With that, we are Kingdom of the Logos. Remember to share our content. You can download us on SoundCloud, iTunes, a few different places. If you'd like to donate monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com. So that's Kingdom of the Logos. But remember to be supporting your local church. With that, God love you and have a blessed day.